This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Wednesday the 27th of October 2021. And Norman, we have talked a lot about the coronavirus itself. We've talked a lot about vaccination and treatments. But Mary has written in saying that there's something that we haven't talked enough about for her tastes recently. And it's a good point because it's something that we are going to be seeing probably a bit more on. And that's long COVID, the prolonged symptoms that some people get after coronavirus. She wants to know what's the latest data on this and why don't we talk about it? Good question. Why don't we talk about it? Let's talk about it. (laughs) By coincidence, there's been a good study published from the University of Oxford, and they studied remarkably 81 million uh, electronic health records, within which there were over 270,000 people who'd survived COVID-19. Now, these are people coming forward for care. So how many of the people who survived COVID have come forward with, with long COVID symptoms? So of the COVID survivors, they were average age 46, a little bit more female than males, 45%, and more than half had one or more long COVID feature recorded during the six months. Wow. So it's a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of people. And so what kinds of symptoms are people coming forward with? Fatigue, feeling unwell, chest or throat pain, headache, brain fog, tummy pain, uh, and anxiety and depression, which was quite common, more than one in five people. That's really, they're kind of, they're pretty disabling symptoms. You're really not living your best life if you're walking around with those sorts of things. It's not just sort of like a, I don't know, I don't want to dismiss any symptom really, but those are things that really limit your ability to uh, have a good quality of life. Yes. Now, one caveat here is remember, these are people who came forward for care to come and see their doctor because they were having problems. So there are likely to be more people out there who've got problems who are not coming through. So you're not getting the, the real effect, but yep, it can be pretty disabling. And there have been comments in the British journals and press that um, the NHS could be overwhelmed with people with long COVID much as much as COVID itself. So half people, more or less, of people who recovered from COVID are potentially looking at getting this. In Australia, we haven't had huge numbers of COVID compared to somewhere like the UK. We're getting really well vaccinated. By the time that COVID does start being in Australia more, do we know if vaccination protects against long COVID as well as the acute disease itself? Well, first of all, I think the, the Australian data suggests a lower incidence rate because they've been following people a bit more systematically than this. And it's probably somewhere between 30 and 50 percent from the Australian studies. The assumption is that vaccine doesn't, the vaccination does help because you are less likely to become sick and severity of illness is a predictor of whether or not you get long COVID, although people who've had mild COVID do and can get um, long COVID symptoms. Um, But the assumption is that vaccination does help, yes. And how long does long COVID last? Is it something that lasts sort of three months or is is the the six-month timeframe that they looked at in this study was sort of the length of time of the study? There could be people presumably going around still having it beyond the six-month mark. Yeah, I think the the data suggests that it wanes with time. And so the the highest number of symptoms are at the beginning and they tend to wane with time. Um, But whether that's true of all the symptoms is yet to be declared or, or yet to be described. So you're saying in the UK that they're looking at the NHS, looking at this burden of people with long COVID going forward. Obviously, as an individual, like I'm listening to this as an individual going, I really don't want to catch COVID because I really don't want long COVID. But what about the health system in Australia? Is the vaccination, as well as protecting our ICUs, it's really protecting against these long symptoms as well, isn't it? That's right. So we're, we should be in good shape. 
particularly since the wave of immunisation has followed the outbreaks. We were paying catch-up at the beginning with vaccination, but vaccination has, by and large, paralleled the outbreaks, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria. So hopefully we're mitigating that. And on vaccination, we're hearing people talking about their kids and wanting to protect their kids. We're vaccinating from the age of 12 and up here in Australia. And at least in the States, it's looking like they're circling towards Pfizer and Moderna for kids there. Are we going to see that here anytime soon? Well, Pfizer is um, being considered by the authorities, by the Food and Drug Administration. So I think their approval, at least at the time of us speaking, is yet to be approved. Moderna has put out a press release saying that their research into or their trial into young children has borne fruit and they've got uh, good immune responses to a half dose of Moderna. But um, that's still to be considered by the regulatory authorities and there's nothing published. And as far as I'm aware, there's nothing published with Pfizer either. It's just data they've been giving. So I assume that data will be given to our authorities. They've certainly asked for it, and, um, but it's up to Pfizer and Moderna whether they give it. We do like to check in on how we're going around the country and we won't go around the whole country today, but I thought it'd be good to talk about the ACT, Norman, because that's a place with hugely high vaccination rates at the moment. We talked to Casey Briggs a week or so ago and he said sometimes with those smaller jurisdictions, the numbers can be spongy. But I think no matter how you cut it, the ACT's vaccinated a lot of human beings and their case numbers are really starting to come down from a pretty low starting point. Is that because of vaccination, do you reckon? You'd have to assume, well, the health minister has in, in uh, the ACT has said, well, they're not quite sure that it could be either their vaccination rates are stamping out the virus or people aren't coming forward for testing. Testing rates are pretty low in Canberra, so it, it, it really is uncertain. But there can be barely an arm over the age of 12 in uh, the ACT that hasn't got a bit of um, elastoplast on it. <laughs> It's a nice way of putting it. Um, so, uh, look, it can only help. And it's, it's just extraordinary, the numbers. I mean, the, the ACT must be close to the highest immunisation rate in the world. Is it too small of a jurisdiction for us to then generalise out to what we might see in the rest of the country? Like once we get, if we can, get to those really high vaccination levels that we're seeing in the ACT, does that just mean we're, we're barely going to see any COVID around? Over 12, yes, that, that we should really be controlling infection. When we give, start to give third doses to the elderly and to healthcare workers, and as COVID goes into the communities, we've talked about this many times before, that should prevent a surge in hospitalizations and help again with infection. But remember, infection is only one measure, hospitalization is the other key measure, and we should, be, we should see, and uh, Juliet O'Brien, who's another one of our data journalists in Australia, has shown quite convincingly decoupling of hospitalisation from the case numbers. So we might say might see spikes in case numbers, particularly with waning immunity, but that should not matter because we're not going to see the people ending up in hospital. We've actually got a question from Lex on hospitalisation and waning immunity, saying that you've been talking about this, but he's uh, but Lex has heard the chief medical officer saying that the waning protection from severe hospitalisation has little evidence. So does this mean that nobody has studied it, or that it doesn't happen, and that another Norman mea culpa is due? Well, here here are the data. I mean. It's true. Pfizer doesn't go down a lot. It goes down by, by about 4%, absolute. So it goes down from maybe 95% to about 91 or 92% protection against hospitalisation, which is still good. But that 4% is significantly made up of people who are elderly and over 80. And 4% of a lot of people is still a lot of people who could end up in hospital. The effectiveness of 
Astra against hospitalisation drops over six months from about 80% to about 60%. So Astra does drop more and is below Pfizer. So that's the evidence. And that evidence comes largely to that degree of accuracy comes from the UK, from Public Health England. And a question from Philip, who has some friends in WA who are hesitant to get the vaccine and are anti-mandate. Philip says most of them are males in their 20s to 30s. And he says they say that they want free choice whether to get it or not. They say that they've got natural immunity. Um, and just Philip's just wanting some advice on how to convince them to get to the sh- to get the shot without leading to arguments because we haven't really been affected by COVID. I know the W hasn't been affected by COVID. They haven't got natural immunity yet, but um, they will be infected when it opens up eventually. And some of them will end up in ICU. Just remember, the rates of ICU are about one in 50 if you catch COVID. And it does affect people in their 20s and 30s quite severely, just a little less, obviously, than the elderly. Um, so you don't want to get it. You don't want to get long COVID. And I just quoted the long COVID figures. It's quite young people who are actually getting young COVID, at least from the UK. And then the final thing that I would say to people um, is, well, how selfish are you? Do you want to deny somebody if lots of 20 to 39-year-olds end up in ICU in West Australian hospitals? That means people who need complex surgery, urgent care for other problems such as cancer and heart disease are not going to get it because there'll be no beds in ICU or reduced numbers of beds. And the system in Western Australia is already stretched as it is in other states. So do you really want that? Do you want to be the person who denies somebody else who's got a condition that's not preventable, uh, to be denied a bed and denied treatment. I mean, and that to me is utterly selfish. And even if you don't get severe disease, you could be passing it on to someone who does. So, yeah, do it for yourself. Do it for the people around you. I understand that some people don't like being told what to do but uh, and mandates maybe kind of bring out that side in you, but try to take a step back and see the bigger picture. And reality is West Australians, much as they think they're different from everybody else, but they're the same as other Australians and they'll come forward for, the fact, for vaccination in good numbers. I, I thought you were going to fan the flames there, Norman, but then you, you came good in the end. No, no. They're, West Australians are just, you know, just obedient like you and me. Just do what we're told. <laughs> do as you're told, get a shot and do leave us a question or a comment at, at abc.net.au slash coronacast. See you tomorrow. Bye.